Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. So this episode, we are finishing our discussion of For Lesson. This is our second of two discussion episodes. And this time we're going to get into the religious illusions and, and references. And we're also going to tackle these puzzles and mysteries. But first, we want to update you about our Patreon goal of releasing this show weekly instead of bi-weekly, which is to say double the amount of episodes that we do now. Uh, a few months ago, we announced that we'd gotten more than halfway to that goal, which was very exciting. And since then, we have had a number of generous new supporters. And so we are now about two thirds of the way there. And this is really awesome, really exciting for us, because reaching that goal means getting to the Book of the New Sun more quickly. And then when we're there, being able to do more than one or two chapters a month, which I think everyone will be happy about. So if you like what we do here and you'd like us to do more of it, please check us out at patreon.com slash Media. Yeah, we really value your support and look forward to sharing with our new supporters all of the bonus episodes that we have on Patreon. And I just want to, of course, thank our current patrons who have helped us get here as quickly as we have. All right, so... Let's get back to for lesson. We're going to start by looking at the religious elements of this story, uh, and, th- and that's going to lead us really to the end of our discussion. But there, there's there's a few big elements. The first thing that I want to do is really look at the red book. And so I'm just going to read the passage of the red book from page 109 in Castle of Days. This is a, a random page in the kind of primary religious or spiritual text of this world. Of the nature of death and the dead, we may enumerate 12 kinds. First, there are those who become new gods for whom new universes are born. Second, those who praise. Third, those who fight as soldiers in the unending war with evil. Fourth, those who amuse themselves among flowers and and sweet streams with sports. Fifth, those who dwell in gardens of bliss or are tortured. Sixth, those who continue as in life. Seventh, those who turn the wheel of the universe. Eighth, those who find in their graves their mother's womb and in one life circle forever. Ninth, ghosts. Tenth, those born again as men in their grandson's time. Eleventh, those who return as beasts or trees. And last, those who sleep. So I just kind of want to go through these 12 types of death and the dead and see if they are represented in this story to maybe ask the question if this story is takes place in an afterlife of some kind and i wonder if that's the case um, because mark aramini presents a possibility in between light and shadow though i don't really think that he's uh, indicates that this is his reading that this story could take place in the afterlife of mr frick that Mr. Frick in this story is uh, stand-in for Henry Clay Frick. And, and we have a few mentions of Clay in the story associated with creativity. So it's not a crazy stretch. It's a little bit of a stretch for me, but I can totally see this reading. Henry Clay Frick and wa- was Andrew Carnegie's partner. And he helped create U.S. Steel in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem Steel. Uh, Henry Clay Frick was viciously anti-union to the point where you know, he had some Pinkertons go in and, and break up a strike, resulting in nine deaths. The Pinkertons killed nine workers. And that this world is somehow a punishment for Frick. 
I don't think this is the case because Frick seems to be doing pretty well in this story. But you know, if if this story isn't Frick's afterlife, it, it still may be a plausible reading that this story is taking place in a sort of afterlife, and maybe it could be a purgatory. So let's just start from the top. The new gods for whom new universes are made. Do you think that there's an example of that anywhere in this story, Glenn? I don't know that we see a person who has become a new god, but this is a self-contained universe, right? So I think that we see in this story that that is a possible thing that can happen, Uh, especially I I think this might actually work well with with Mark's idea that this is Frick's world here, right? If Frick is someone who, you know, was so awesome in life, uh, if if we think of becoming rich and having workers murdered as being awesome, I think Frick probably did, right? That he's gone on in his afterlife to get his own world, to continue to, to... lord it over people in this way that might be one place where we we see that if we're you know if we're trying to make something fit do you have an, another idea no i i don't and and you know it could be that you know the name emmanuel here is, is supposed to evoke some sort of reality that maybe for lesson will go on to become a new god in some way and, and have his own universe i just i don't find it that plausible that they're that we're seeing any of that in this story next those who praise. I don't see anybody really praising anybody or anything in this story or having any sort of thing to praise. Everything, the whole material world is empty and it and nobody even knows who made it. The whole of creation is uh, blank and as, being curious about it, even who made the highways seems to be met with punishment. So I don't see that in this story. Even as we were going through the various aspects of this world, the work life, home life, and civic life, we didn't talk about religious life very much, actually, like in the fifth head of Cerberus, where it's just kind of not here, even though that's a part of the world that matters very much to Gene Wolfe, the person. It's not here in this speculative world that he's envisioning in this story. That's a massive clue in the fifth head of Cerberus that, hey, we're actually dealing with hell. We're dealing with an awful place. I think that's working the same way here as well. And you're right in the sense of we're thinking of praise in a a sort of religious sense of a a rendering glory to, to God, praising God for his creation, something along those lines that we definitely don't see happening here. But we we do get some examples of people who praise, I think, in this story, but it's all these management people praising upward, up this corporate ladder. And in particular, I'm thinking of the, the creativity group when these people are in awe of Fields because he's been able to to get uh, his higher-ups, his manager's secretary to help him out here. You know, It's also, of course, because they're in love with each other or something like that, that that's actually happening. But that they are in awe of his ability to do that. And so one, that might be one of the things that Wolf is looking at here is uh, rendering unto Caesar the things that actually are due to, to God, perhaps. Yeah, that's an excellent catch. Uh, next is people who fight as soldiers in the unending war against evil. Um, there's only one soldier mentioned in this story, and it's Abraham Beale. So I wonder if he is, you know, maybe a number of these types of characters. Maybe he is one who is not dead yeah, I don't know. I'm there's so much strangeness around this, but Abraham Beale seems to be maybe a few of these things. And he's definitely a sold he was a soldier. He's not one anymore. But I think he is fighting in some unending battle against evil by being 
a hitchhiker by provoking the civil order. That, yeah, that's the only way we could actually see him engaged in that. And I don't think it's a far stretch to say that Wolf thinks this world is evil, this this world that he's imagined that is maybe not all that different from the world he's actually living in, that it is a, an awful place. And especially if we're thinking about this as we're going to eventually, uh, in terms of individual salvation, that Ab- Abraham Buell is flagging down individual people who seem to be paying a little more attention than their neighbors, getting in their cars and talking to them about the awful state of the world, and then thanking them for the ride and, and getting out and going to, to you know rustle some, some horses or something, right? So it's, there's a sense here that, yeah, uh, if we're thinking about unending war with evil as a battle for the souls of individuals, then it does seem that Beale is engaged in that activity. Next, we have those who amuse themselves among flowers and street and sweet streams with sports. Uh, this to me is a, a kind of a odd sort of reference to all of the managers who speak in these sports metaphors that, that they're, they amuse themselves by speaking in this way, but there's like a distance between them talking this way and the actual activity. Right, because they're stuck here just as much as for lesson is. They're stuck in MPP just as much as he is. They aren't actually getting to do these activities with the possible exception of, of Frick, who's only going to go play golf, which I, I know people like golf, but it's it's hardly going on a ski trip or a sa- sailing trip, right? And and I'm not sure that I would describe that as you know an afterlife of amusing yourself among flowers and sweet streams. I'm not sure we really see this one here in the story. Yeah. Um, those who dwell in gardens of bliss or are tortured. I don't think we really see that in this story either. Well, this is my favorite one of these because these seem like incongruous things to me, yet they're a single category that, you know, if you're rolling the dice, you know, 12-sided die in the aftermath and you, you get five, there's still like two totally opposite <laughs> possibilities that could happen here for five. Right. Uh, gardens of bliss we definitely don't see here, but this whole thing feels like a torment to me. Yeah, it could be read that way. This is this is like a real uh, sort of Borgesian list that Wolf has generated. And if if you think this list is funny, you know, for our listeners, go read some Borges because this is this is the kind of stuff he likes to joke around with these absurd categories. Um, those who continue as in life, uh, you know. Uh, maybe this is all of the background characters in the story. This, these are the people who are asleep at the wheel that don't see Abraham Beale anymore. Um, and, and some of these categories like weirdly overlap. It's very, it's a, it, it is, it is a strange enumeration of categories, but what, what's your thought on that one? Glenn? Well, well, given that the whole world itself is basically a simulation of America circa 1970. I mean, this seems to be almost everybody that we encounter. You know, if, if we think that everyone who's in this story is a real person, an actual individual person, and maybe they're all in this afterlife together, it seems to me that everybody who's at MPP probably was was living this type of life in whatever American suburb they were living in, whatever you know, with whichever of these Fortune 500 corporations they were working for. This seems to be the bulk of people we encounter in this story. Right. And this this whole category of the whole parent category of these is the nature of death and the dead. And the fact that some of these categories of the dead are clearly categories of living people, you get the sense that there's a sense of of living or a way of living that is living as if you are dead, though your life continues. And I think do we see that the, this category the most in this story? 
those who turn the wheel of the universe. I don't think we see anything like that in this story. We only see one person working and they get injured. Uh, What's your take on that? Right. I don't actually know what this would mean, literally, right? It envisions that the universe is a thing that spins, but not on its own, that it needs people to labor in order to to do that. Uh, I don't think that we see anyone doing that. I don't think that there's a metaphor going on here, right? I don't think the people at MPP, even the actual laborers, I don't think they're doing this activity. I think this is just something we don't see at all here. Right. It's a purely metaphysical category and, and maybe one that's not translated well. Who knows what we'll have in mind with this one. Maybe one of our listeners can let us know. Uh, the next one is those who find in their graves their mother's wombs and in one life circle forever. Yeah, this is a weird way of saying you, people who are just reincarnated, right? That uh, that you in your grave you get you're just going to be born again, but you're going to live the same life or same type of of life, right? If we're envisioning this as kind of a a, a scale, perhaps, right? That um, you can do better, right? Your death can be better than your life was. This is just no, you're just just doing the. You're, you're going to go back, which I guess is is somehow different from number six, which is you're dead but you're continuing as in life. So I guess having to actually go back to the real world and do it again is a, a lesser fate or a worse fate. Right. This is kind of the idea of time as like a, a flat circle that you just go and it all repeats over and over and over again. Who knows if you can really make changes? It's certainly a big fantasy conceit. This idea of the wheel of time is, you know, <laughs> the wheel of time, but also Stephen King's Dark Tower series is sort of caught up in this idea. Um, but it's also a sort of Nietzschean idea as well. Ghosts. I love this sentence. Ninth ghosts. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful sentence that Wolf has written there. It's also hilarious. Uh, for me, this is also Abraham. Beale. He is described as being transparent or his soul having more materiality than his uh, his material body. To me, he, he seems like a, a sort of ghost figure in some way in this story. Plus, everybody from his generation is dead. So we have to explain his existence somehow. And I like the idea of seeing him both as a ghost and someone who is fighting as a soldier in the unending war with evil. I'm not sure you actually get to be two things on the list, but it is an interesting idea to, to I don't know, I guess envision him as kind of Obi-Wan, right? That he's died uh, and has become, uh, you know, a blue glowy ghost somehow, but is still carrying on, is still fighting the good fight. In fact, doing it better, perhaps, than, than when he was uh, flesh. The next one is those born again as men in their grandson's time, which is different than reliving their life from the start from their mother's womb. Um, this one, it's, um, you can't even know if there's anybody like this in this story, but who knows? Right. We, we actually don't really see any grandparents in this story or grandkids. Uh, in fact, this is one of the things for lessons seems to actually kind of die young, right? And if, if we're following the timeline of for lessons day, he may actually die before quitting time at work. That the only reason he does get to die at home is because he was allowed to leave work uh, an hour early or or something like that. And so when we meet his son, finally, in this story, his son is quite is quite young. Uh, Those who return as beasts or trees. Now, the only beasts and tree symbols we see in the story are on the police car. So I'm wondering if there's any connection between this and the police order in this world. I wondered that as well. I, I, I don't think that the Robocops are people who are returning as beasts and trees. I don't think that those are the same 
the, the same thing here, right? Especially if we're seeing this as kind of a descending scale of things that you would you would want to, to be. I, I'm not saying I want to be a RoboCop uh, either. In fact, I'm not sure if it'd be worse to be the RoboCop or for lesson in this story. Uh, but I don't think that that's, those are the beasts and trees here. Yeah, me neither. But maybe they represent those people in some way. It's weird to have these two symbols show up in the same story, especially we know how careful Wolf can be, but maybe he was just rereading John V. Marsh or something like that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I suppose that if, if we're thinking about the Robocops as as something that looks like a person but actually isn't really a person uh, that doesn't have full sentience, even though it's a part of our community and a part of our lives, that we can see beasts and trees as being, uh, you know, we could describe them similarly, right? Think about our attitudes towards pets, right? They're a kind of liminal state between a, a person and just some animal, Right, but that we know that there are distinctions there in those categories. So, yeah, I, Robocop might fall into that same type of category here. At least symbolically. Who At knows? Least, and right, again, yeah. this is a bad translation of whatever text Wolf has <laughs> made up. Uh, the last category is those who sleep. Uh, this is also uh, many of the the people in the world. This is something Abraham Beale points out that most of the people are asleep in this world, that for lesson is awake, at least early on, as he's curious, though. He, he's not by the time we get to the end of the story. Yeah, and if all these drivers who are asleep at the, the, the wheel here, if those are the people who sleep, then it, it's not as good as it sounds like it should be. And maybe I'm just saying I'm tired and what, what could actually use a good, night, a good night's sleep. I guess this is the bottom of the list. So maybe this is supposed to be the worst thing, that this is actually um, several steps worse than turning the wheel of the universe, even though that sounds like a pretty laborious task to have to spend eternity doing. Right, and who knows if you even have to live in all eternity or if you can die or if there's a permanent death. Maybe those who sleep is the permanent death and it's always better to be some form of life apart from that. Uh, I just want to point out a few things about this list. One, there are 12. The number 12 shows up a number of times in the story. Uh, that is, of course, of you know significance to the, the Judeo-Christian tradition being the tribes of Israel, the number of disciples of Jesus. So we're getting this sort of religious numerology throughout the story. And then number seven here, which is the number of perfection in um, the Christian numerology, is those who turn the wheel of the universe. And that, that to me seems like a strange sort of perfect state of being to be in, but hey, maybe it is. And maybe Wolf's just throwing things out there to have some fun with numerology. But kind of talking about this, this the role of the Judeo-Christian tradition in this story in terms of symbolism, we have Emmanuel, meaning God with us, Edna evoking Eden and also pleasure, Abraham, one of the patriarchs. You know, what's your take on the, on the sort of Christian religious element in this story? Well, I think there's even more to it than that, right? Of course, we've got the names, yeah, Adam Bean, Abraham Beal. Adam Bean's a great name, by the way, right? This idea that this is the first person, Adam, and then being a bean, right? That everything grows out of a, of a bean. Uh, that's, a, that's a great name. Wolf is always so good at names. But Abraham Beal is a, a, a kind of Christ figure in this story in the sense that he's standing outside of society and being critical of it, that he is preaching to for lesson. Uh, and he's even doing it in the form of parables. Um, I made a big deal of the the, the parable of the, the dying apple tree. That's what I'm going to officially dub it uh, in the, the recap. But he, he gives a second parable as well. This is a parable about, about two roosters that I didn't narrate during the, the recap. And this is when his, his brother set two roosters to fight each other. One of them he describes as a gamecock. And then he describes the other one as uh, his father's special 
pet. Uh, and he, he tells us how that ha- happened, like in what way this was his father's special pet, that there was this, this rooster was one that Abraham Beale's father would feed cake crumbs right out of his hand. But the special pet gets very badly hurt uh, in this incident. And father was mad as hell is the, the phrase that Abraham Beale uses. Um, mad as hell at his brother for having set up this fight, right? So there, you know, what is what are we supposed to learn from that story? Well, that might not be clear, right, to for lesson in the in the moment. But these two stories, the dying apple tree and the two roosters, these are parables. So he is speaking like Christ, as well as seeming to to live like Christ, or at least have the relationship with society that Christ does. And it really all comes back to the dying apple tree, because even that parable of the of the roosters there, uh, the punishment is the further death of this apple tree. And I brought up the presence of the rotting apples in for lessons desk when he gets to work that we're left behind. We have this criticism of books. For me, this is all about uh, a society that doesn't value certain kinds of knowledge that aren't rooted in modes of generating wealth, profits, and uh, efficiency. And I, that is my sort of reading that that ethical, moral, general, broad knowledge um, doesn't mean anything to most of the people in this world uh, because all they're focused on is productivity, profit, and efficiency. And there's at least one more element of of Christian stuff going on in this story that I, w- I want to point out simply because I, I know that I left that out of the recap, which is that the very cover of this red book, which sounds like this beautiful book, which is red leather cover, has an embossment on it, f- faintly though, but that it's uh, there's a winged figure that's surrounded by three people, right? So we could see this as an angel. Maybe it's being surrounded by just regular people, but you know, three people is uh, maybe also the, the Trinity, right, in, in Christianity as well. So again, more symbols. Well, there there is more like spiritual and metaphysical questions in this text that really come in at the end with the explainer. In our last recap episode, I didn't really dig into what the explainer is about and what's going on, or I I didn't feel like I did a very good job with that. But I think Mark Garamini did a really exceptional job with this. And so I'm going to lean on his work here a little bit. The explainer shows up and adapts a persona that will explain whether or not your life had any meaning, and you can choose the persona. And the final question of the novel that Forlesson asks is, if what he has suffered has been worth it? And the explainer answers the the question by saying, no, yes, no, no, yes, no, yes, yes, maybe. Um, But that's nine words. And each of those words can correspond to the list of personas that the explainer can be. And so uh, what we can read the ending of the story as and what Mark Garamini suggests here, and I think it's a really good reading, is that each of these personas is letting for lesson know whether or not his life was worth it to that kind of category of person in society. Here, I want to plug Mark's book again, because I'm not going to read everything he wrote. I really just think you should go out and find a copy uh, and and read some of his work on uh, wolf stories. But I think it would be a good idea for us, Glenn, to sort of do an exercise here uh, briefly and look at why the explainer might answer as he does from the position of the persona. So the first is, as a doctor, no. As a doctor, your life, you know, a manual for lesson, the suffering has no meaning. 
why, why would he, why would from the position of a doctor, would that be the case? So I love the idea of going through and doing this, but before we get into it, I want to point out one thing, which is that we actually get this list two times in the, the last two pages of the story and we get it in reverse order. So although I'm with you that the explainer is probably answering this question in the order most recently given, we could also reverse it because we've got that we've got the list in two different orders. Uh, but yeah, so doctor, right. I think, you know, for, I think to a doctor, if you ask a doctor is my, does my life have meaning in your professional capacity as a doctor, what type of, what is the meaning of life? Uh, a doctor sees you as a biological organism that is born and dies and that's it. That's, that's what it's for. Uh, ideally you've reproduced uh, along the way, but all the things that you've done have just been in service of, of that. All of the, the food that you've shoved into your, you know, cake hole is just in service of, of that, that there is no meaning to it. Right. And that suffering, there's no meaning to suffering for sure. Right. As a priest, he says, Yes, the explainer says, yes, your life has meaning. But what's odd is he says no as a theologian. I want to kind of uh, jam those two together. So what do you think Wolf is contrasting here between a priest and a theologian? Right. So this this jumped out to me as well. I, so with thinking of what is the difference between a priest and a, a theologian, it is also interesting that these are the professions that matter to Wolf. They're pretty heavily leaning towards the religious and intellectual here, right? Uh, But a priest is someone who is actually a practicing agent of the divine and who is uh, leading a community in in worship and guiding that community in the the right life, the life that the divine has in in mind for us. And I'm just using divine there to keep it as a a sort of generic religious idea because lots of religions have priests. In fact, most of them. But a theologian is someone who studies God, right? A theologian is someone who studies what uh, God is and w- how we're supposed to, to live, what God's plan is, right? It's this, literally the, the science or the study of, of God. So though they both are about the divine, that they both are religious in, in nature, they're performing totally different functions. And if a, the, the job of a priest is to, to tell uh, to, to look people in the eye, right, and tell them how to live their life and to give them advice in specific situations about what choice to make here, that there's a, a sort of narratology that happens there, right, that, that we, there has to be a reason why we're, we're living this way. And especially, right, I think the question that priests are going to hear most often is, why did this awful thing happen to me, right? Why do bad things happen to to good people? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? And the priest has to have an answer that's about it's for a a purpose, that that you going through this suffering is going to turn out to be worthwhile. It's going to turn out to have meaning. But a a theologian doesn't have to have that answer to a person, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. A theologian can say, well, there is nobody that's good in the world, uh, and they are not responsible to the community of, you know, parishioners and their well-being and, and the whole functioning of the community the same way that a priest is. Um, so they can take a kind of a harder tack. Uh, it reminds me of the, the you know, the quote in Brothers Karamazov where Alyosha is having lunch with his brother or dinner and he says, um, if I love a person, I hate humanity. But if I love humanity, I hate the individual uh, because they're, you know, they're screwing it all up. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. <laughs> but to me, that's kind of the difference of a priest and a theologian. The priest has to love the individual 
and find meaning in the individual suffering. A theologian really has to like the whole system of thought that buttresses whatever religious belief there is. Uh, philosopher, no, probably for the same reason as the theologian, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the dividing line between philosopher and theologian, I mean, I think for my money, a theologian is perhaps a type of philosopher, though uh, we might get a lot of angry mail about that. <laughs> well, I'm not going to argue with you that much on that one. Um, as an actor, yes. What's your take on that? Yeah, why is actor even in this list, right? You're, you're about to die. You're wondering, what was the point of my, my life? And these are the types of people you can get to construct, a, a, to either to explain that to you. And one of them is an actor. I mean, I, I, sure, I, I suppose I'd, I'd like to meet Tom Cruise, but like, I don't really need to have him come tell me what my life has been for. I think I definitely don't want Tom Cruise telling me what my life is for. But... Yeah, I had to pick the Scientologist out of all the possible actors. Right. Um, well, you'd throw, you can throw a coin and hit one in Hollywood. So um, I think, yeah, as an actor, it's weird. I mean, just generally speaking, an actor is like one who acts in the world. And so maybe it's that level. But I think it's definitely more like the person who is a professional actor. I don't know. Maybe it has to do more with about narrative again, because the novelist is maybe and maybe somebody who can look at your life and understand the choices you've made and will be forced to empathize with that in order to need to perform that on some way would tell you that there's real meaning in that, even though I don't think it's a it's a good meaning, but meaning for them, maybe on some level. Yeah, if we're thinking of an actor as someone who is given a, a, a script, given a, a, a story that's written by someone else, a, a novelist, perhaps and is told to act that out in front of other people to, to pretend to be this character that I have written in this book, that the actor has to start to think about who that character is in a different way than the novelist does and to, to create meaning, to create motives for all sorts of things that maybe the novelist has actually left left out of this. And so it, it is an interesting choice here, uh, certainly in contrast to two novelists, but yet both having a relationship with uh, storytelling uh, for people. Warlock. No. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if many warlocks are out there giving out advice and meaning. <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I don't know why Wolf tossed this in here. It's just kind of, it's another Borgesian list. I mean, it's an absurd collection of categories, but some of them clearly do have meaning. Yeah, well, I think if we're, you know, warlock is just an awesome word that I do not use enough in my everyday life. But we could have had sorcerer here or, or wizard or magician, right? The idea here, I think what we're thinking of is is someone who has a, a numinous power over the over the world that is, is non science, right? So you can make fireballs or magic missile, or maybe there's some other things that you can do, you know, uh, summon demons or, or something like that, which is, we're going to talk about that in a minute as well. Uh, and so I think this is supposed to stand in contrast to a, a priest and theologian and maybe philosopher who have a different conception of the cosmology, right? What is the universe like than a warlock does, where the warlock thinks that there are secret principles that, you know, he can learn in order to harness the power or manipulate the universe to to make it do his bidding, which is very different from what a theologian, a philosopher, or a, a priest uh, think the universe is for what the universe is like. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, that, that idea of unlocking that esoteric knowledge uh, in order to control and manipulate uh, in in technological society, Jacques Ellul talks about these pagan uh, societies who use magic as as method. Magic is a technique, but what different, differentiates magic from science uh, is that often when 
when a society disappears, it's this type of stuff that goes away with it. It's their magic and their magicians, even though it's a highly technical secretive practice whose methods are sometimes not even related to the outcomes of that practice, that when that goes away, there's no way to reconstruct it. And so, I don't know, that's just another, uh, that's just something that I think, you know, indicates to me that Wolf has read Technological Society and is thinking about that as he's writing this story. Well, I think for a warlock, again, you aren't someone who thinks that the universe has any particular meaning, right? That that we've, we are here as, as individuals for some kind of purpose and that our suffering has meaning that for a warlock, the universe is simply raw material to, to do stuff, right? That, that, that would be my sense of why you get no here is the answer. Right. As a national hero, yes. I don't really have any thoughts about this one. National hero is such an interesting concept here because it's not, you know, a job that you you get. You don't go to college and major in national heroism. That's sad, actually, because that sounds awesome. (laughs) I'd like to take that class. Maybe I'll see if I can teach that class. Uh, This is a label that people ascribe to you that you it's it's actually putting a fictional persona on a person that is entirely about a narrative and in order to be a hero your suffering has to i mean one i think to be a hero you have to have suffered in some way at least that's the way we conceive of hero now and it has to have been for something so if we think about the people that in the united states that we would regard as national hero i think we would just say that there's a whole category would be Congressional Medal of Honor winners, right? And most people who win that medal uh, do so posthumously. They've died doing the heroic thing that that they're being uh, awarded for and, and memorialized for. But even if we think of people who, who don't die in that service, right, they've gone through great great hardship, great suffering in order to do something, whether it's, you know, drive off the, the, the British, right, and uh, by, uh, by nearly starving over the, over the winter at, at Valley Forge and having to, you know, cross the frozen Delaware River to take the, the, the baddies by surprise, uh, that, that there is, that this is, a, that, these are, that these are all stories about suffering for a purpose and that the act of suffering that you have done in order to achieve a goal is the entire meaning of you. In fact, anything that's not that, no longer has any meaning for for anybody. So the answer there has to be yes. I guess, but in such a scathing, in a story that's such a scathing critique of society, why would the national hero, the persona of the national hero tell for lesson that his life has been, that his suffering has been meaning, meaningful? And, and maybe this, maybe that question in the presence of this figure in this story is Wolf paying tribute to these types of silent sufferers, the mass of men living lives of quiet desperation who go to work every day and provide for their families and suffer and are expected to uh, continue to play nice with the rest of society and that the national hero recognizes that on some level, that this, this does play a small part in a much bigger community that you're a part of, whether you can see it or not. Right. It, it's suffering for the, the the greater good. I think that's got to be the only real connection here, because I think otherwise you're right that in spirit, right, Wolf is certainly not praising this system in this story. Wolf wants to burn this down and build something that actually has real meaning and real community for people. So it is an interesting idea here that that Mate for lesson is some kind of national hero, but again, right? This is simply what what are the, the 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 people on this list? How are they going to construct meaning for you? 
I don't think it means that it's the right answer, that there's truth in that answer. Two left here. Uh, an aged lore master. Yes. Again, this is a this is a sort of narrative thing, looking at knowledge that maybe for lessons strive to have that forbidden knowledge about books or the world outside uh, is the world outside of work life is really meaningful in some way. What's your take on the aged lore master? Well, I love aged lore master. This is my favorite one on the list for sure, because what does that even mean? What is a lore master? I have to think this just means Gandalf, right? That this is a stand in for Gandalf because otherwise I don't know where this term is really uh, like a common term that Wolf would be, uh, would be using. And I think there are actually some other explicit references to Tolkien in the story that we'll get into in a, in a, a little bit. Uh, and so the idea of thinking, you know, what's the difference between a lore master and a warlock, for example, is in kind of the, the angle of approach here. Then, in what what is the the lore that you're gathering? What is the what is the purpose of that? And you know, Gandalf is a wizard, but he is definitely not a, a warlock, or really is contrasted with sorcerer in the the Lord of the Rings, in particular, a necromancer. I, I suppose we could say too. And Gandalf, in particular, his whole uh, approach to what is heroism, what is uh, what what is the value of an individual life is about making sacrifices for other people. And it's about small people, uh, lowly people in life. I mean, also literally small people doing heroic things. And, you know, on top of that, Gandalf is literally an, an agent of the divine in that story. So if it, it's all got meaning and, and, and purpose for him. Uh, but I'd love to hear listener thoughts. I'd love to hear what the Wolfpack has to say about this aged lore master business. Yeah, that's a fantastic reading. I, I really love it. And it kind of combines with that, with what I was uh, talking about with regards to the national hero, where it's about looking at the way the the small sacrifices really matter. Not everybody gets rewarded for the sacrifices they make, but if one thing about the hero's journey and fantasy stories and the whole idea of the hero and the wizard has taught us is that regardless of the reward, you have to make sacrifices in order to accomplish anything in life and that i just really i really appreciate that reading i had not seen any tolkien in this story but i'm sure we'll get a little more about that in a moment what about as a novelist glenn why it may be there well because uh, this is gene wolf right gene wolf is the novelist or is a novelist and he's got to be thinking of himself here he's gonna be standing in and this is his point of view he doesn't know, right? If he's not, he's not done. He's not done living, right? You can't call any man fortunate until he's dead, right? And so that's certainly an approach. If he's thinking about his own life, and it seems very much that he is in this in this story, uh, but also I think there's a, a real poke here at novelists uh, thriving on ambiguity, right? And uh, the way that they, in the way that they tell stories, and Wolf certainly is a master of ambiguity. We, we wouldn't be doing this show if he was not a master of ambiguity, if ambiguity wasn't lurking around every corner. And I think what I appreciate the most about this on the list is that uh, so far it's been a black or white category. It's either yes or, or no. But this is a this is a gray area, right? This idea that, well, yeah, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. There's also maybe a sense that, well, it's up to you to figure that out for yourself. Well, I think one thing we can definitely say about this list is that Wolf really emphasizes the importance of narrative and maybe like the liberal arts or something like that as being the, th the tools that exist to explain 
meaning and suffering to people in life. All the yeses are caught up in ability to narratize in some way or enact drama or perform the drama or understand the drama of life in a way that brings out the meaning in some way. And and that's a it's kind of a fascinating way to approach this this really kind of dreadful life that this person has had that the only people that can let you give you the answer of whether or not your suff- suffering was worth it are those who understand narrative. And, you know, I brought up just recently the fact that not being allowed to read at work, the wife doesn't read at home, that the, the importance of engaging with these narratives is sort of outlawed or the social pressure has stopped people from doing that in the society. And so they're left to ask these questions at the end of their life, maybe because they never really engaged with empathizing with diverse points of views or encountering other people through narrative in a way that helps them construct meaning. So what happens when the only meaning left is corporate culture and a police state? That seems to be at least part of what Wolf is doing at the end of the story. Well, I think we're at the point now where we can really ask the the big question that the explainer poses or tries to answer by for a lesson, which is, what is the world? The explainer says that Forlesson may have been oppressed by demons or revived by unseen aliens who, landing on the earth eons after the death of the last man, have sought to recreate the life of the 20th century. Or it may be that there's a small pressure exerted by a tumor on his brain. Could be any of these. It could be other things as well that aren't given to us, but this is what we have to work with. Glenn, did any of these jump out at you as being the most plausible answer? I mean, we have a reference to for lesson being a vampire or something like that. Cause the mirrors don't work for him. Uh, for me, the second answer seems the most light likely um, because I, you know, believe it's tied to technological society. Wolf having read that maybe, maybe not, but encountering these ideas about uh, the mediation of life through technique and method and that, this is what aliens would think life in the 20th century was. Uh, I kind of reject the whole uh, tumor on the brain reading. But Glenn, what what do you think is the most likely reading? And then maybe we can dig into some why or why not. Well, I'm interested that you think that the the tumor is less likely than the oppressed by demons. I think I would have those flipped because I just don't know that we see, although we see certainly a lot of oppression in this story, I'm not sure how demonic any of it is, though I mean, we might see this as all uh, all of this stemming from the actual agency of, of Satan in the, the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. But all of that aside, I, I'm with you. I think that the science fiction reading of this, which must this must be the aliens must be the answer that a novelist would give you. I don't think it's the answer that any of these other uh, types of explainer would give. I think that's got to be the answer. If any of them has to be the answer, it's going to be this one. And I think we can just look at, at some of the, the evidence, right? That there's definitely some science fiction-ness going on here. The the RoboCops are kind of a, a dead giveaway that there's something technological happening here rather than something uh, you know, mystical or magical that would scream demons, right? This definitely screams aliens, at least in the, the way that if we're thinking about you know genre as publishing categories and as a matter of furniture, this has the furniture of a sci-fi story. The RoboCops are a big, uh, a big part of that. The fact that we're told explicitly that we're on a different planet, a planet that is called Planet. We also see a, a language that Forlesson doesn't understand and that seems to be 
radically different than the English uh, translation of the the Red Book. Now, this can happen with uh, many human languages as well, but I think there's a real sense that for lesson doesn't even recognize the the script that it's in and 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 so on. So there's a real alienness uh, to that as well. And then, of course, we have the the business with time here, right? That this is uh, here on the planet. Planet, uh, the length of a day is is different because of its relationship with its sun. Uh, there's also, though, uh, thinking about language again, there's also the the matter of uh, misspelling hours and misspelling weights or giving the wrong hour, hours and the wrong weights that suggest that this has all been set up by someone who's had to learn English. And that also might have something to do with the discrepancies in the original text and the facing, facing translation as well. So all of that suggests the science fiction reading to me. But there is a kind of an interesting discrepancy here in, in that the explainer says that that the, that reading, that that explanation for what's going on here would be taking place on Earth. It's about aliens having come to Earth. But we are told this is on the planet planet, not on the, the planet Earth. That doesn't bother me that much because I think Wolf is just making fun of the fact that our planet is called Earth, uh, which is a word we use to mean like the land on the planet. Uh, and so that that might be a mistranslation of the aliens as well, or a misunderstanding that we have all these epic names for the other planets, but we just call our, our, ours like uh, the stuff we walk on, like it's earth, you know? Right. We call it dirt, right? <laughs> right? I mean, the Latin word terra, which is translated as earth also just means dirt, right? So yeah, I'm on board with this reading for sure. Yeah. I just, I think Wolf is having a bit of fun here with the, with the aliens, but I guess that that leads us to a really important question which is that is Emmanuel for lesson even alive in in the way that we'd think of life? Why well, I really think that this story reads as a as a sort of simulation, and maybe they're trying the aliens are trying to get information about what life was like, which is explicit here, but they don't want to just look at the mechanical reproductions of people's behaviors. They need. Uh, people to be conscious on some level. And so uh, you've brought up a few times in our discussion that that you question whether or not Emmanuel is the only person here, by which I think you mean like fully conscious, whether he's the conscious person participating with other AI, or whether or not everybody is conscious. And um, so I guess, what what do you think? Is Emmanuel real? Is he a real boy? Uh, Is he the Pinocchio of the story? Or is everybody uh, at the same level of consciousness for this alien experiment? Right. So if, if we're going to say, yep, aliens did it, then we need to ask the question of, okay, but how? What is actually happening here? So if it is the case that aliens in the, the far future have come to Earth and have uh, done some archaeology and uh, they're looking at 20th century Earth, maybe because that's when Earth stops because of a nuclear war, something like that. I mean, we can harken back to, to feather tigers for, for that idea uh, circulating around Wolf's, uh, Wolf's mind and in Wolf's stories. Then how are they actually creating this, this replica uh, life? Have they actually made a human being? somehow, right? If they're all dead, they're all gone extinct. Where does Forlesson come from? Have they grown a real person uh, somehow through, you know, finding DNA uh, in a in a mosquito trapped in amethyst or something like that? That's one plot device you might use. Um, <laughs> it's the first time that would have been used, I think, in fiction. Is, there, is, it, is it something like that? Have they, have they, is, 
is he a computer program that they've devised or a, a, a robot? I'm not sure the answers to any of these questions are clear in the story at all, because I think we're really meant to be more asking the question than, than getting answers to them. But all of that is just in service to thinking about, for me, what is the real question, which is, is for lesson alone in this? Is he the only real person in what is otherwise uh, some kind of simulation? Or is everyone real here? And I have the distinct feeling that Forlesson is alone here, that he's the only truly real person. Uh, but I can't really point to anything that, that you know, concretely supports that and, and strikes down another reading. It's really more just a sense that I have. My sense is the exact opposite, that everybody is real people here, that the, that the whole planet is a, is a simulation. I, I'm not even convinced that there's a sun or anything like that. We never see him looking up at the sky and really seeing the sun. He's looking down. The highways are constructed oddly. Uh, that this is all maybe existing in, in a sort of program simulation of Earth in the 20th century that's taken from books like the Technological Society describing this post-industrial revolution, uh, you know, early technological age where everything is subordinate to technique and method. And he's also looking at capitalism and uh, corporate money in politics and governance and all this stuff. And the aliens are maybe trying to determine what impact that has on what they imagine a human being would be like. But they have to construct a whole society around that. And so I really think that, that it's always day that time is subjective and managed in strange ways um, and that there's a lot more kind of like hard science fiction that got edited out of this story to keep the reader feeling really off balance. But also then to use it as a critique to say like, what would it look like if your life were boiled down to a single day? Well, maybe you'd spend a third of it driving and maybe you'd spend a fifth of it at home and taking a lot of shortcuts like who knows when, how did these people have kids? Why don't, why doesn't anybody have memory of, of being a, a child? Why does he wake up with a blank slate? But then Mr. Frick remembers that there were kids. There's all these sort of glitches in the system um, that to me read like a, like a simulation that kind of has just these issues that aren't fully resolvable. Yeah, and Mr. Freak is a real problem here, right? Because yes, he's got this childhood memory that for of for lesson that for lesson doesn't seem to have. We don't we don't ever really get a response, an internal response from for lesson denying that or saying he doesn't remember that. But there's no confirmation that they that's a really a shared experience that they have. But also, Frick doesn't age during this time. He seems maybe to be the only person who doesn't, though there might be some others who don't age as well. But certainly Forlesson is aging. He's living an entire adult life through the course of this story. But for but but Frick is old when Forlesson sees him in the morning, when Forlesson himself is a youngish man. And Frick looks exactly the same when he sees him later in the day, when Forlesson at this point is demonstrably an older person, that he has been rapidly aging. So Frick is a real aberration here. And I guess that's one of the things I would look at to say that this is only happening really to for lesson. Yeah, that's an excellent point. But we also have people like Fields dying in, in his office. And it's, it's such a strange story. I mean, it just really is that I guess we have to ask the question of what does it mean for this 
20th century simulation to be set up so that there's only one player who can experience it with any sort of consciousness. What What's the impact of that on the story? And is Wolf sort of doing the same thing that he's criticizing the, the, the world of work of doing, of dehumanizing the individual by saying, well, they're the only ones who, who matter, and that individual experience is important, but at the same time, through his critique of that, is dehumanizing everybody else in the piece. To me, that seems like a, a sort of problem, maybe, in approach to the storytelling. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point if we're thinking about this story primarily as a, a social critique, and I think it certainly is that, primarily, that the speculative fiction edifice of the story matters much less than than what wolf is saying about what it's like to go to one of these jobs i mean and he's said you know in the the introduction to the story that you read to us at the the top of the first discussion episode that's what he had in mind when he started writing the story that's what the story is about I guess for me, though, in thinking about is for less than the only real person here or not, it really stems from the fact that I don't actually think that this is aliens. I mean, the question you asked was, which of these three? So I played that game. I don't think it's any of those three. <laughs> Fantastic. What is it, Glenn? What do you think it is? I think this has to be purgatory. Uh, I think that that's, in, in fact, I think it's really important that uh, of the three answers that the explainer randomly throws out as examples of explanations he could give, uh, we don't get the priest, the philosopher, or the the theologian, right? That's explicitly not who we're getting these answers from. There are a number of reasons why I think this is is purgatory, but first maybe we should talk about what purgatory is. There's a, a lot of confusion about what purgatory is that we never really quite did this maybe when we were talking about the fifth head of Cerberus <laughs> and did a lot about purgatory there. But, you know, purgatory is uh, a, a theological development of, of medieval Christianity uh, late in the, later in the high Middle Ages, It's really kind of a, a 12th and especially a 13th century development. And it's this idea that lots of people are not going to go directly to heaven when they die. And there are going to be specific circumstances why that can happen. And it's about um, not receiving uh, last rites or, or having had a chance to atone for all of your sins. So purgatory is your opportunity to do that and then to, to move on. And usually the idea of purgatory is that you still actually have more suffering to do before you're going to get into heaven. And of course, right in this worldview, living on earth, life on earth is also suffering and is kind of meant to be suffering. And so purgatory is an extension of that after death before you go on and live a great eternal life in the, the kingdom of, of having the kingdom of God. That's what this feels like to me, that, that, that this is a, a story of a person who died in a, a car accident on his way to, to work. And so there are some sins that he's committed that he hasn't been able to atone for. And that's what this is. This is the, the purging of those last sins before he's allowed to move on. And it's happening in this real microcosm of living the most hellish parts of his own life uh, in this intense, uh, you know, single moment, and then he's going to die, right? So there's the, the sort of suffering element here that leads me to think that that's what Wolf has in mind. But then also the the real last words of Forlesson, right? That he wants this coffin to feel like a bed, and he also wants it to feel like a ship, right? And this is the idea of a ship 
taking you to the to, to heaven, right? And that is an image that is directly out of Dante, as we've we've talked about perhaps ad nauseum in the fifth fifth head of Cerberus. It's also um, an image that the Tolkien uses in in the the Lord of the Rings. He uses in some other places as well. So it's a common motif for how you're going to move on from purgatory to heaven. Uh, I've got a couple more things that I'll, I'll throw at you, but I'll, I'll take a breath and let you respond to all of that first. That's fascinating. I I've really read this story uh, pretty much through the lens of looking at it as if aliens were trying to recreate the 20th century, as if that that were true and thinking about what Wolf might have been looking at or reading to talk about that. And I think that is a big element of this story. But the spiritual element to the story seems so slight to me. And the parodic elements and the satire of the story seemed so large that that, that's really what I focused on. And so I didn't really encounter or read this story as uh, being another example of Wolf writing about someone in uh, purgatory or hell or somewhere that is lower than earth and but you know you can still get to heaven somehow but he seems to have that on his mind a lot as as really life as hell around this period of time even in the death of dr island it's a very very dark reading uh, of the story that we came up with you know, that's not always on the surface. And to me, the darkness and bitterness is really on the page here. So I think I wanted to read it, read it more as a, as a satire with kind of a sort of a tragic ending in a sense, rather than as a, uh, as a life in purgatory. But now I'm thinking of the great divorce by C.S. Lewis, which has no bearing on this conversation. <laughs> well, I'll take us back to, to Lewis's friend Tolkien here. I'll say one more thing first, though, which is simply that, you know, we are kind of primed at the very beginning of the story to be thinking about afterlives. And so that seems kind of like a clue to have that in mind as well. But uh, I'm thinking of a, of a specific work by Tolkien that you probably haven't read, Brandon, because I think very few people have read. And this is his little story, uh, Leaf by Niggle, which you can find in a volume called Tree and Leaf. And it might be in it's probably in some wider collection that Christopher Tolkien has edited recently as well. And this is a story about a man in purgatory. And his purgatory also is a workplace. It's described as a workshop. And the story is largely about how what he is doing in the the workshop to to get out of purgatory and to move on to to heaven. And and it is a lot of suffering. It is a terrible place to work. It is, is menial work. Uh, he has to do the same tasks over and over again, even though he's just you know completed them. There's no sense that any of it has any any purpose or any meaning. That there's no possible satisfaction or joy from the work either. And it just strikes me that this is Gene Wolfe's science fiction version of leaf by niggle there's some other parallels as well and one of them is the real emphasis on creativity right for lesson here seems to be the only person in this story with any creative spark at all which also suggests that maybe he's the only one who's a, a real boy but who actually thinks about art and and making something and in fact it's even the idea of making something out of clay is made fun of by the people around him he's going to make a, a statue that nobody wants or something like that that's not the creativity we're talking about and in Leaf by Niggle, Niggle is an artist. That's really incredible. I mean, I think the idea of... Uh, I'm not really sure that Forlesson ends up in a, in a better place at the, at the end of the story so much that he, that he hopes he will. And so he's still left wondering. But, but the end of the story is really metaphysical. And, and we're even told with the Red Book that 
everybody avoids reading the end because even though it has the answer to how everything ends, nobody wants to know the answer to that mystery. And the fact that he his own mundane life is narrated in this brown book is also is also very strange. I wonder if Wolf is just playing with it with a number of different ideas and, and literary stories and motifs here. I could totally buy a, a reading that he that for lesson is in purgatory, which was probably my first instinct when I when I read the story until the explainer says what the world could be at the end and I thought, Oh, this is a like Wolf Red Technological Society and is doing a, a parody of that. Like if aliens had one book about the twentieth century to describe the kind of cultural milieu uh, from a sociologist's perspective, that would be the book that they would try to use to, to recreate the world. We, we should pause here, by the way. We are probably in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the four hours or so that we've done on this story, but you've not actually told us what that book is and who, the, who wrote it. Can you give us... Sure. So th- this book was written in 1954 by Jacques Ellul, who was a French uh, sociologist and he he was also a lawyer and a really really smart guy and he was also a catholic and he was a big part of the catholic intellectual scene in the in the 1950s this book uh, the technological society was translated in 1964 and released in america it's really a book about uh as i as i've kind of been saying before how everything is subsumed by technique so technology is not machine a big part of his struggle in writing the book is to try to describe something that is so obvious but really hard to put into words it's kind of he's trying to create a discourse around how technique governs our lives and technique could also be something like method um, the best example in this story is sort of about how uh, for lesson is the tool of the car that's really designed just to get him to and from work, which is in service of something else. And so even with this creativity piece, because there's no real method that is created by the business or technique, to just be creative doesn't have any value or purpose. Even the Because creativity is driven towards an outcome where Alul asserts that part of the ideas or the mindset that governs our time is that efficiency and progress don't have an outcome. They just lead to more efficiency and progress. And to just be rooted in those ideas creates weird kinds of labor, um, but it always creates labor, but it's not useful or it doesn't have an end because let's say you go to work and your job is to create a process that's going to make everybody's job easier. So you do that and people can do in 10 minutes what used to take them an hour. I just saw a Google AI commercial about this today for like spotted leopards in the wild. They're like, we can do in 10 minutes what used to take us 10 days. And then they realize in the advertisement, you know, whoever wrote it that like, wait, why, why are they still out there then? And then they have to say like, so that we can spend more time caring for leopards. But like the, the reason why is secondary to the fact that you can create something more efficiently. And so you take something that takes an hour and turn it to something that takes 10 minutes, but that person still has to be at work for eight hours for some reason, um, because that's how they prove their value. And it's that sort of stuff that I see suffused throughout this story, the real inconsistencies 
of the outcomes of this technique and method-driven and progress-driven approach to our world that still demand the same amounts of time and energy from people that steal leisure from their lives. When you're sitting at a desk with nothing to do for four hours a day and you're not allowed to do anything else with that time, even though the whole system is designed to be efficient and progressive, what does that even say about the type of world that we live in? I mean, it is a type of hell. It really is. It's too wildly inconsistent ideas that are jammed together that everybody who works in um, kind of a technologically advanced office has to deal with every day. Right. I mean, to, to boil it down, what we've done is create extreme efficiency of what we're th- what we mean is uh, input versus output or input to output that it takes less input to get the material output that gives us all the the sustenance and shelter and comfort and luxury that we that we have in the developed world. Yet somehow we are all spending less time with our families and less time at church, less time in pursuit of our hobbies and interests, less time in our community. We should be spending more time, right? If, if we can get more efficient, if it takes less time and less energy to do X, then we should have more time for A, B, C, D, and so on. But yet we're all spending not even the same amount of time at X, but actually more time at X with nothing to, to do. And it feels like a, torment it feels like you're just going to a a prison just to go to a prison just because you can't be allowed to spend more time with your family in your community and and so on and that's clearly the critique that wolf has in mind here right the clear another clear example of this is when he goes to his boss's boss when for lesson goes to his boss's boss and he says well please just tell me exactly what i'm supposed to produce and what outcomes you need to see. And the boss says, well, if I knew that, I would just have a clerk do it, which is basically if your job is reducible to tasks, it's not valuable because tasks can be paid hourly. And so it's it's pointing out how even strange our economy functions around this. The 40-hour work week, the 50-hour work week, the week, the time spent in a car, when every business process is apparently designed to make your day more efficient. It doesn't actually create more work to do. You just get it done faster. And people still need jobs. So like a business that makes a billion dollars in profit has to hire people because that's how you keep communities alive. You can't just say like, well, we're making this much profit. We don't need these these jobs anymore. No, they still have to create jobs because that's like a government Mandy, that's part of what being a business is, a massively profitable business. So, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a book that explores and tries to open the discourse on a lot of these questions. That's the result of the war machine and scientific research that really came out of World War II. And that was a big part of the profitability of World War II. It's been a while since we've talked about this here on on the show, but Wolf, of course, is a big part of the the Catholic intellectual response to the Industrial Revolution and the Industrial Society, the capitalist society that that grows out of it. We've we've seen his critiques of it before. Certainly, you know, we've 
just recently done Hour of Trust. But Operation Ares has a lot of critique of this as well, where we've seen Wolf championing the idea of a universal basic income that would mean that people don't have to go to to this type of job in order to to meet their uh, their material needs. And people like G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, who's also, uh, a, 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 who's also French uh, the, the 20th century, though he mostly actually lived in England for complicated reasons, really advocated for burning down the capitalist system, tearing it down, deconstructing it, and putting something else in its place, but something else that's not socialism or democratic socialism or any kind of, uh, or any sort of collectivism either, but actually replacing it with what I would probably describe as a kind of fantasy version of the, the Middle Ages, this kind of uh, rose-colored glasses idea of what the high Middle Ages were. But, it's a, a, they, but they advocate for a world that doesn't have jobs at all. They see the idea of jobs as being the great evil of the, the capitalist society, that what people really need in order to be fully people in order to be fully individuals, but also to be members of a community, to be living the life that God intended for, for people is, I guess, how they would think of it, requires people, basically everybody, to be a small business owner, right? Whether that's a, a, as a farmer or as a craftsman, but to be working for yourself and to be working for the the to supply the needs of a local community of which you are a member and you know the people that you're making shoes for. You know the people who are going to eat the grain that you are harvesting and and so on. And I think Wolf though perhaps probably a bigger pragmatist than Belloc or Chesterton and you know living later and seeing that that this world is not going to get undone in that way, I think he still prefers that world that for him that's a kind of fantasy that that that's a daydream i guess is what i mean by fantasy there right that this is what he's thinking about when he's driving his car on his way to invent pringles is i think i just would like to make shoes in my house with my wife and i could be with my kids all day right and you see this idea in his afterwards where he says that men who have no other skills to support themselves have to do these types of business jobs because it's it's not really skilled labor. It's relationships with other people that there are there are skills in management for sure, but it's not skilled labor in the same way that making or writing is. Wolf, I think, is also saying I could support myself as a writer, and I was able to do that after you know really fifteen years of publishing um, stories and and one novel or two. Um, but I mean, he really didn't hit the lottery until Book of the New Sun. So he was working two jobs basically to support his family. Um, but he had that other skill that he was being paid for. And he knew all these people that this is what they did with their lives. Right. I think that's a great point because we are seeing Wolf writing this story at, at, at what feels like must have been a low point in his assessment of what society is and what his daily life is like. But he does actually get out of this world, right? He gets out of MPP eventually and does find a way to be at home with his wife while he's doing his work, which is the the dream of for lesson in this story a, a dream that causes him to essentially have a panic attack and have to pull off to the side of the road and just look out at the world and wonder what it 
isn't what it's all for. Uh, it's great to know that we know that in the future, 10 years in the future or so from this story, Wolf is actually going to make that a reality for himself and for Rosemary. So at least in the real world, there was some optimism for Wolf. Well, I think we are just about ready to get out of here, but let me circle us back around to the argument that we interrupted about what actually is happening in this story. And I, I think I, I want to conclude by saying that my reading of this story is all of the above, right? That what we're getting, I think, at the end of the story, where Wolf is introducing us to all of these possible explanations for a narrative or for a life, is that you can choose one of those and then graft the meaning that that person would put on any story onto your story, that there is a, there can be a novelist spin on this story. There can be a priestly or a a theological or a philosophical spin on this story or interpretation or explanation for this story. And it's a kind of a choose your own meaning story. And I think ultimately that's why the novelist says maybe because it's up to us. I think that's an incredible point, and I and I agree with you. And it's really, I think this story more than any other wolf story that we've read so far is so much about what life feels like, the like the phenomenology of existence that you have to find an interpretation that makes sense. I mean, we have people today who are asserting that we live in a in a simulation of an you know an alien world or something <laughs> like that to find meaning in life that meaning is always a question and it's always a search and what wolf has done is given us a maybe a satiric a satiric microcosm of life compacted into a single day and still asking us to find the meaning and you and i both have really different encounters with things we've read outside this story that have impacted our our reading of this story. And I hope uh, we hear more about that from our listeners on the forums. Well, and I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the speculative world of For Lesson. Yeah, even though we've now spent almost five hours on this story, we're still leaving some things on the table, some pretty big things, I think. Uh, For one thing, we never did get around to talking about whether For Lesson or Abraham Beale are meant to be Christ figures, even though I did threaten to do exactly that, like in the first breath of our coverage. And next time, we're going to be back a week early, just a a little taste of what it would be like for this to be a weekly show. We're going to be back with a bonus episode live from LaughCon, where we covered R.A. Lafferty's classic story, 900 Grandmothers, That was a blast. I think you guys will love it. And then after that, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode on the fan favorite, The Hero as Werewolf. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.